Hi, everybody. This is Trip. As some of you may know, I spent the first part of my career as a teacher. I worked in some really tough schools, some really fancy schools, schools that were rural, and those that were in big cities. My career in high tech has often intersected with my past. I've led education product development at some very big companies. It's been a long time since I was at the head of a classroom, but nearly two decades later, teaching is still the hardest job I've ever had. It's also the part of my career that I'm proudest of and has most influenced the person that I've become today. As a parent of three children in K-12, all of whom have IEPs and 504s, I see how much harder the job has become and how, amazingly, you've been asked to do so much more with so much less than when I was teaching. I remember parent-teacher conferences and the long nights of grading and proctoring dances. I even drove school bus in rural South Dakota. I remember all the work outside the classroom, not just grading and coaching, but counseling and consoling and sometimes even feeding and parenting kids that didn't get enough of either. I remember how cold and flu season was, how many of us were laid low at the end of the semester, right in time for the holidays. My thoughts will be with you this fall. You're being asked to take lessons and tools designed for the classroom online. That's a whole new domain of expertise you haven't been trained for, given the right resources or support from your schools or districts. This isn't fair. It's not fair to you, to the kids, to parents, or the administrators, schools, or districts that you serve in. We need to do better. The episode you're about to hear is an introduction to a limited series on the impact of the pandemic on schools, students, families, educators, and society at all levels. I'll be honest, we couldn't dive as deep as I would have liked to on this one. In fact, we had to rush it to get it out before school starts. We felt that was important. Please grade us on a curve. There's a lot of talk about homeschool, which is a good choice for some families. But as many parents figured out this spring, the job isn't as easy as it looks. We realize that homeschool isn't a good solution for many, many families, including mine. There are going to be follow-on episodes in this series about education at all levels. We'll be joined by experts, educators, and leaders from all backgrounds and walks of life as we discuss the crucial role the education system is going to play as we build this brave new workforce together. In addition to these episodes, I'm also going to be posting a free series of videos to YouTube that share some practical ways to use simple, inexpensive tools and approaches that might be better suited to the way you want to teach online. Those tools may not always be allowed by your districts, but maybe it'll inspire the right conversations at the right level to get some of the resources you're going to need in the coming year. The 2021 school year is going to be a big teachable moment for the American education system. I hope it'll lead to the right conversation about how do we fix a system that doesn't fit the kind of society and economy we have today. Finally, while Anna, Larry, and I are happy to help schools and districts with our expert consulting, if you want some help or advice from somebody who knows the classroom and can recommend the right collaboration tools to reach your students most effectively online, reach out to me at trip at bravenewcompanies.com or at Trip Odell if you use Twitter. I'll do my best to help if I can. If you want to give us some feedback, suggest a topic, or even come on as a guest on the show for this series, feel free to reach out to us through the website, thebraveworkforce.com. And if you like what you hear today, we'd really appreciate it if you share it, write a review, or just recommend it to your colleagues. Stay safe, and thank you for your service to our children. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Better days are ahead. 
everybody. This is Anna Kudina. I am with my two fabulous co-hosts, Larry Carnett and Trip Odell. If he's not choking on something, what are you doing there, buddy? <laughs> I'm trying to cough off Mike. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're you're okay though. It's not a heart attack. Nobody gets to call. Or, or, not co- that old or COVID. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just checking in. What? Just checking in. Well, today's subject is kind of an old one. I mean, Alice Cooper once sang a song about it called "School's Out." School's out forever. Um, and I think he mentioned something about burning the building down. I'm not. I'm not too sure. Should we be burning the schools down right now? I'm not sure. Uh, but Tripp has some very passionate thoughts because his background is in teaching and education. And what's going on in especially the United States economy? I, I don't know. Like looking from afar, I'm just like, oh, <laughs> um, uh, with, with regards to the teachers coming back into the fall, people are thinking it's going to happen. People are thinking it's not going to happen. Uh, Tripp, let's let's hear it. Well, this is this is an idea that we've been talking about in the background for a long time. I mean, I've I've I mean, as long as we've been talking about the podcast, but Larry's been listening to me blather on about education since he's known me, uh, and it's one of the reasons that I uh, I've, I moved into tech uh, is because I saw a lot of things that were broken in the system. But as we're talking through this, and I think one of the great things about the podcast is that we're all at different life stages. You know, I have younger children. Um, you know, Larry's kids are almost all out of the house, but all of our friends are talking about how, uh, what's going to happen this fall. And uh, I think it's going to be an unmitigated disaster. We're not prepared for it. Uh, and really, this one is going to be about how schools need to evolve. It's not going to evolve overnight, but we are looking at uh, from the spring when we first went into lockdown, I suspect that we're going into six to potentially as long as 12 months of kids being out of school, schools not being prepared to teach children or you know to, to teach undergraduates at any level. And there's been a lot of uh, people speculating about this in the media that they don't know what's going to happen in K-12. Uh, there's been this, and I feel like he's been on point, uh, and you're a big fan, Larry, uh, Scott Galloway out of NYU, this marketing professor. I mean, what, what's he been talking about? Yeah, so Scott's been talking about this for a while, and he's been on a few shows kind of letting everybody know that something is going to be happening in the higher education level and we're not prepared for it. And that we've all seen that the cost of education has gone up astronomically over the last 20 years plus. And what's happening now is he did an interesting analysis of what's the return on investment of an education. And if you're looking at universities and colleges moving to a fully remote model, which they're all talking about doing again for this fall semester, can you still justify that cost? So really, what is it about? And it's a lot about the pedigree and the name of the school. And so there's going to be an interesting hollowing out of the middle is what he's predicting is that anywhere from 25% to 50% of these colleges that are in the middle are going to struggle and some are going to disappear entirely. Yeah. That I mean, the higher end is going to survive, but the middle gone. Does that include federally backed schools? Because I'd imagine those are the ones that are going to stay, if anything. 
So it's typically the Ivy Leagues and the ones that are sort of the, the you've got the Ivies, sort of the elite tier one. The tier twos are going to be fine. You've got some high quality, good value schools that are, are going to do okay. And then he's got these two other categories of struggle and perish. And those, and, and it's, it's almost like 25%, 25%, 25%. I mean, there's 4,600 colleges and universities in the United States. Uh, and that's where that 25 to 50% come from because the, the, the return on investment over the life of a worker just isn't there for what they're charging, but they are completely dependent on tuition. They don't have an endowment to lay on. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these universities complain or, or, or sue the federal government about restricting foreign students coming in for American university educations because those students pay full boat. They aren't on, on, on state aid. So the big state universities, there's always going to be funding, but you may see a lot of regional uh, campuses close. Uh, the, the main campuses will always be there. The elites and the great schools will be there. But you're seeing this thing where people that were going into the middle or the lower end, they just aren't going to have options. Yeah, what's I find interesting about this is that my kids, so I have two children that are in college. One's in kind of his last year of university. My daughter's actually in graduate school. And then I have a kid that's going into his senior year. And so they're all right on that edge as you were talking about. And the universities are telling us, hey, we've made a call. We're going to not bring kids back in the fall semester. We're not ready for it. It's not safe. So we're going to do everything virtually again for the fall semester with very rare exceptions. What I find interesting is that that density of the classrooms, as you all know, is a lot less than what you're seeing in high school and grade school. And yet we're having this conversation about bringing the K through 12 back when already the university has said, no, it's not safe. So it's kind of ironic that K through 12 is having this conversation. I think we know what's driving it. I think we absolutely know what's driving it is that we have used school K through 12 in America for a long time as essentially a daycare system so that parents can work. And parents are struggling right now because parents are working from home. The kids are at home. They're having a hard time being productive. We talked about this before. And so I think people are pushing for a return to the classroom because they want to be productive at work again. Well, and there's all sorts of historical reasons for why I mean, it's the worst childcare you could possibly imagine. Uh, you know, when you and and teachers will be the first to admit it uh, because it doesn't even line up with working hours for parents. So parents are paying up to twenty percent of their household income for pre-care and childcare and early childhood education. And the problem is, is that yeah, Scott Galloway is onto something with twenty-five to. 50% of these schools no longer being there at higher ed, that's a tip. That's a nice problem to have compared to the problem that we've got coming with K-12. There are 131,000 K-12 schools in the United States. Uh, and when you, when you look at the, that's 28 and a half times the size of that problem. And the problems are way more baked in at K-12 and the downstream impacts that are generational this is like not having safe water across the country. This is like not having a secure food supply chain. And this has happened over and over and over again with hurricanes shutting down Houston, Texas. Uh, I, was in, I was in New York or the New York area when Hurricane Sandy hit. 
Um, I've seen snowstorms shut down Seattle for a month, uh, and it is incredibly disruptive to many, yeah. many aspects of the economy. So, Anna, what are you thinking? What are you seeing outside of, I mean, we're in the U.S., so we kind of have a U.S.-specific vision of this, but outside of our little bubble, what are you seeing in terms of what people are considering for their kids going back to school? You know, that's a good question because a lot of my friends are still single. And um, I do know of a one couple in particular where their daughter is out of school currently, but it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal because his wife uh, was studying. And so she's out of school now, too. So it's kind of like this nice balance where she's taking care of her of her child, right? Um, obviously, that's not the case for everybody. I work with clients who have children running around in the background. And they're, they're for me, coming from my background, right? Uh, I, I came from a homeschool background. So this, to me, is interesting to see how parents who have traditionally relied so heavily on the public care system um, are finding their new grounds. But, you know, when I grew up, uh, we had structure and we had we understood that dad went to work and mom was going to help out and and things like that. But we don't have that now. So I'm not really sure, like, what the best solution is, uh, especially if it's some if it's children under the age of 12. You know what I mean? Um, right. So but I mean, Larry, you raised your children in a homeschool environment i'm assuming under the age of 12 or how did that right. work yeah i mean we we did that too so our kids were homeschooled um and you know, luckily my wife was able to spend a lot of time taking care of that and so i think we had the luxury of, of being able to have a household where that was possible and i it's interesting because what we've seen is that our kids have done really well with homeschool They've gone on to college. My daughter graduated from a UC a year early. Now she's in graduate school. My oldest son's in college and my, my youngest son's preparing for it. And so we know that it can work. I think where the challenge is, we didn't flip a switch and do this overnight. So we had the, the luxury of kind of coming up from a very young age of starting to do this when they were like three, four, five years old, right? And kind of learning our way into it. That gives hope for parents with younger children, honestly, because it means that they can start foundations young and early um, and have a have a really good education. But I, I, I think that's great for the individual family level. Um, and, you know, I've got a complicated relationship with education. Clearly, I'm super passionate about it. Um, I uh, work I've I've led design for K-12 education products uh, at places as big as Amazon. And one of the things is that uh, a lot of these tech companies have no idea what they're doing in education. They have no idea of what the problems are. And I'd argue that most parents uh, of school-aged children have absolutely no idea the challenges that teachers face and school systems face. And I saw that firsthand in my own life. And I, I can get into that, but Larry, you had something to say there. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, in our case, my wife had been a high school teacher, so she kind of understood this space and she understood how to build a curriculum. I would say the most valuable thing that we did is we found a support network. And so we found a support network, both within systems that supported homeschool education, as well as other homeschool families. 
and we're able to help each other with curriculum, education, taking turns, teaching the kids. It took care of the socialization issue that everybody complains about. I mean, I've been hearing that my entire 20 years of my kids going through homeschool. It's like, how are they getting socialized? And it's not a problem when you're part of a community and you have a support system. And I think that is the biggest problem right now. Parents have been thrust into this world and trying to figure out how to do it almost overnight without a support system and without any kind of professional guidance on how to guide their children through this online learning environment. Yeah. To be fair, I mean, growing up in Singapore, that was something that uh, my father was researched heavily in. It wasn't an overnight decision. In fact, it spent, I remember him telling me, I, I, I kind of remember the conversations, but I mean, they're mostly closed doors of him talking to my mom about why all the pros of homeschooling. And this was so such a foreign concept, especially in an Asian culture where they really, really pride themselves on the 12 hour study day. Um, and my mom, it just took, it took my mom a lot of, a lot of months before she could say yes to homeschooling. And then once that kind of that piece clicked, um, that's when they discovered homeschooling groups. And I had friends. Even when I was out of school, I had friends. And um, I was so completely socialized. I mean, I'm still socialized, a little quirky maybe, but uh, not, not too beyond damaged, you know? So I, I want to check our privilege here a little bit. Um, because, uh, you know, I'm fortunate enough that, uh, I've had a career that has allowed my wife to stay home with our kids. And that's been crucial because like me, all three of my children are dyslexic and my youngest is on the spectrum. Uh, so there's a choice of like public school or where there are resources available to help them. Uh, and that's as much as 20% of the school population. Uh, you know, it's typically about eight to 15, but in the better performing, uh, districts. There's more resources for that. But growing up, after my parents divorced, my mom had a high school diploma. We moved. She was working. We were working poor. Uh, she did not have an option. She did not have twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to plunk down on the type of school that we needed. Uh, and she did not have money left over. I mean, I had aunts and uncles looking for us, looking after us before and after school. Um, this is an infrastructural problem that the vast majority of workers do not have other options available to them. And uh, I think there's a there's there's multiple aspects. There's a legislative aspect. There is a governmental aspect. There is a uh, a, a corporate aspect. And then there's a reevaluation of how we do this because this didn't happen overnight. This is a hundred year old problem. I think this is something all may perhaps uh, households who have taken on homeschooling have realized, but not necessarily people who have put their children in traditional school have realized. Um, not, not saying anything bad about either. It's just that I think from my experience of being in a homeschool community, we have so many of those stories where the school system is broken and they weren't going to take the status quo anymore and they were going to find a way to make it work. You know, um, there have been communities in my um in, in my childhood where both parents worked and they still chose to homeschool their children, but they relied on their community to to give child care to us or to whoever. And there was more of a, a balance that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think Tripp kind of made the point that this isn't a problem that happened overnight. And it's absolutely right. We've structured our entire culture, the way we work, the way our society functions 
around education. And it's that's true in almost every single country and every single culture is that we've structured it that way. And we have been talking from a point of privilege from knowledge workers who have been asked to work from home. So their kids are studying from home. We're working from home. That's all well and good. But there are essential workers who are being asked to go back into the workplace. And they are trying to figure out when I go back into the workplace, if my kid's not going to be in a school, what's supposed to happen? Where does my kid literally spend their days? And the schools have their hands tied. There is so much legislation, well-intended legislation at the federal level that they cannot experiment into this. Or there's, there's this mindset on reducing their liability as opposed to the best possible outcome for students. So public education is compulsory by law uh, in most places unless you waiver out uh, with, a, with homeschooling. Um, 40% of the school age population is eligible for Title I, which is free and reduced school lunch because families are struggling. Um, you have uh, Section 504 and IDEA, which is there to support students with special needs like my children, where they are by law entitled to a free, it's called FAPE, uh, fair, appropriate public education. Those students cost twice as much as the typical students. And so as you see this migration of um, high wage earning, knowledge economy workers leaving the cities because they are eligible or they are able to work for, for remotely and they're moving to where there's less expensive uh, public education. It's the largest bit of white flight ever, right? I mean, like, the, like I mean, we, that's what they called it in the 60s when, you know, after the, the, it was called white flight back then where people left the urban cores. And there were problems. I mean, that's it's institutional, right? It's it's a problem, and there the tax bases are based on your real estate properties. When those, when that real estate taxes collapse, the money drives up. You have uh, children disenrolling. It is, uh, and and it, we're not set up for it. It's a big, big problem because our education system was set up to teach people how to or get people prepared to build Model Ts, not the next Google. Right. I mean, I think your, your point about how this is incentivized is important. I know that with the, the schools that I was familiar with, they were given federal funding and state funding based on attendance. And so they had to have kids in the classroom, butts in the seats to get that level of funding. That's why they were so um, like obsessive about making sure that your kid attended and was really sick and you know they couldn't come to the classroom because that was their funding that depended on this. You know, it's interesting as as we're talking about this, this reminds me of the conversations we've been having about all the perks and incentives that companies, corporations are providing with employee for their employees. And some of that could be funded by the fact that they're saving money because they're no longer having these massive campuses and people coming in for their benefits and all that support infrastructure. And so you start to wonder if they're it's gonna take so much work. I just I just know how old these systems are. But is there a way for us to think about using the federal and state funding to better support the parents, to better support this new educational shift that we're seeing that doesn't just use the old model of, well, let's put as many kids in the classroom as we can. It's funny because all these things seem to move so slow, which is funny because education is the one thing that needs to move quickly, um, especially yeah, in our world. Yeah. 
So it's kind of sounds a lot of doom and gloom right now. I mean, what what are parents to do if they're if their child is under the age of 12 and it's not like you can just put them in a park somewhere and go work, you know? It's <laughs> child services gets called quite quickly. Um how how are people how can people manage this? What is the solution? Well, I mean, I think one of the problems that we know is that what we're seeing with this pandemic is that it's massive numbers of people in a small confined space for a long amount of time and trying to retrofit the schools to address that issue is almost insurmountable. I don't know how they're going to do it. They've been talking about, well, what if everybody wore a mask and it's like, you're trying to get kids to wear a mask. (laughs) It's like, good luck with that. I know how kids are. We all, we were kids, we know, but I think it's going to require something a little bit different. That's the majority of how you're being educated does move into this kind of virtual system that we've been talking about, right? Where it's easier to keep kids separated. But for the stuff where there's high touch needs, like Trip was talking about, it's easier to have a smaller setting where you could have kind of protective partitions and things like that set up and the right kinds of ventilation systems. Easier to retrofit a small room and small rooms than these large auditoriums. Well, and I think like that's the, you know, I know I sound super cynical and how bad this is going to be, but it, you know, they say that cynics are just disappointed optimists and, um, I have, but these problems have been around since I was teaching and, and, and long, long before that. And, you know, I, I made the crack about the model T that's literally you, you take the thing about the assembly line and the model T is that you took the car and you moved it to the worker, not the worker to around the vehicle, right? You take, 25 or 30 students and you move them from classroom to classroom. Uh, And that's because, and you've got 25 or 30 for efficiency, not because that's the best way to do it. Study after study shows that smaller class sizes have better outcomes, but it's because lecture is the most efficient way of transferring information in person, not the best way of teaching students. And everybody wants that teacher that is going to be individualizing um, but there's ways for technology to make it even better, and you've got the best of both. I mean, studies show as well that um, one to three or four, a teacher of, t- of one to three to four children actually ends up teaching a lot better than a one to 20 to 50 uh, classroom. And this is something even teachers know um, is more effective, but because of lack of funding or poor schooling or whatever you want to call it, they cram as many bodies as possible into a room with uh, as little teacher support as possible. So hopefully this gives a a different environment, like you said, Trip, where we can have more teachers who don't feel over underpaid and overworked um, that can focus on three to four children uh, and give them the best quality level of education there is. When you get the average teacher, uh, you, you take a, you take some teachers out, you put a couple of beers in them, and they'll be telling you all the same things. Uh, they're they're just as frustrated. They're just I mean, people don't stay in teaching for the pay, um, and they want better outcomes. The thing that where the problem with the education starts is teaching the teachers. In the same way that so many businesses, so many professions are struggling with how do you work with remote first? Uh, Teachers have fewer access to tools to make this easy 
And I, I have friends that have offered to come in on the show and talk talk through in the same way we did with Tom Pazika around how do you do this well? What are the tools? And what we're talking about there is uh, teaching methods and pedagogy. Because that when you're talking about two or three or four or five, when you do one-on-one to two or three and then four to five and then to 12, 30, it changes at each stage there. And you can use the technology more effectively where you do have videos that replace the lecture and then the teacher can spend more time one-on-one or in a small group and you do have better outcomes for the time. So I know parents, I mean, they're pushing for K-12 to go back into session because they're overwhelmed, right? And I know that they're being thrust into this whole homeschooling thing overnight. How, if they're, if, if we're saying it's not, it's chances are it's not going to happen in the fall. Chances are it's going to be another six to eight months. How on earth are they going to navigate this? What advice can we give as somebody who was a teacher, as Larry was a, a guy that homeschooled their children? Uh, how, how can we navigate? Um, the thing, the thing no teacher will tell you is that your children are plague rats. Like there's nothing, there's nothing worse than, I mean, it, it, you will get sick during the year. It just happens every year. Uh, the worst flus I ever got were at the end of the semester, right before going into Christmas or winter break. Uh, and just like, like sitting on school buses at tournaments in 40 below weather in South Dakota, trying to get some sleep because I'm so exhausted because I've, I'm, proctoring and I'm driving school bus and I'm teaching full loads and I'm working all these hours spending my own money to outfit. You know, I'd, I'd have to stock my, my, my classrooms with food to keep my kids engaged because, and you get a flu virus into a typical school or a cold, it just hits everywhere. So it is the worst possible idea to open these schools because 130,000 schools, I guarantee you 90% of them will be super spreader events in those communities, especially as the cold weather hits. So I think in terms of practical advice, keep your kids reading, keep your kids like screen time. There's good screen time. There's bad screen time. There's I've worked for companies that had remote tutoring. I've worked for companies that have, you know, content and things and project-based learning. Children learn naturally. They don't need to, you've got there, you, you give them goals. There's all sorts of ways to hack around it. Um, the worst thing you want to do is wait around for the schools to be ready because they aren't going to. And they talk about summer reading loss. 50% of a school year is lost for those three months. Try 12 you're talking about losing entire grades of knowledge and skills if you're waiting for the skill the schools to open back up. You know, that's a good point too because I remember growing up with video games. Uh, they were video games specifically with math problems, science stuff in there. And so go on Amazon and check out what kind of games are available for children under the age of eight that they could be playing. I mean, I know you have to work a full-time job. Uh, so, sh- you know, shoving a kid with the screen might not be like the best suitable option. But honestly, I understand how a lot of parents are just sort of flying by the seat of their pants right now. And if they can bring something educational as a quote unquote low uh low barrier to entry, then I definitely suggest looking up those resources. Not everyone has the opportunities that we have. There are, there are those people, but the, if you design for that and you work backwards to use the Amazon term, a more inclusive solution, we do not want to continue a two tier solution 
for the outcomes for these children and for these families. Some of these families, and most teachers will tell you the worst thing you can possibly do is try to teach your own kids uh, because it's not, it's just painful. It's you, they know your buttons, you know, their buttons. It's like, it's like being the worst substitute teacher ever. Um, you know, if you have family that can come in and adult figures that can come in that are trusted, that are known safe, that you're precautioned, uh, you know, around masks and, and that sort of thing, audio books, there's all sorts of ways, as long as they are consuming content and challenging themselves and engaged if it's on an ipad it's still better and you'll you'll be surprised at what they learn and the pressure of not moving around uh anna did you go to homeschool eight hours a day when you were there like like most school kids no actually what my father practiced or my parents practiced was something called unschooling which was something even deeper into the spiral, like people kind of understood what homeschooling was, but unschooling was like, okay, now you're just a weirdo living in a cave. Hippie. No. Yeah, pretty much, (laughs) pretty much. And uh, basically what unschooling was, was there was no curriculum. Homeschooling, there was a a curriculum. There was sort of some sort of guidance or direction structure. Uh, You could hire a teacher, whereas unschooling, it was kind of like free reign. Whatever I wanted to learn, I would go off and learn it. So uh, I had the benefits of a great, great uh, education um, because I had tons of books available to me that I could read about the world and and whatever. And if I wanted to learn, for example, I wanted to learn um, math. And my father had this old book that I, I don't know, he got from some military guide. I, I don't really know. But basically it taught you everything from two plus two to doing like long division. And eventually it was um, the purpose was so that you could um, wire tanks, uh, do some electric engineering again on tanks and stuff. And so that's what my father and I studied for a couple of months. And eventually to I, put it I as... Would- I would, your father sounds like the most interesting man on the planet moving to just this drop off, like undisclosed location in Costa Rica, teaching his kids, just saying, go do it. And then teaching you how to wire tanks. I just have this vision of, uh, yeah. And so what we would do is we would go around the house and we would try and find all the wires that weren't grounded. And we would rewire the router and stuff like that. I was like (laughs) 10 years old with my dad hanging out and doing things like this. So you have like a That's lot a of teachable fun. moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, he would have like the rubber gloves. And he's like, okay, I know everything is off, but just in case. <laughs> and so it, it, it leads to a lot of fun moments with your children um, that you don't experience because they're in a classroom getting taught by a, 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 what is it? Not a workbook, a textbook that is so boring. Like, how am I going to apply all this knowledge in a textbook where we can just go out? And I got to learn electrical wiring at the age of 10 because I wanted to, and I loved math. I think um, if you look at child prodigies, you know, it's like, oh, wow, you learned how to code at the age of 15 and now you're going to university. I mean, that it happens because that particular child was interested in those fields. You know what I mean? Child prodigies happen all the time, but often they're stuck in a school learning from a textbook about history. And we're killing a lot of, of those aspirational uh, uh, dreams, I think, from, from a lot of children. And we have to think, like, th- is it really necessary to learn a wide range of topics uh, in order to pass a state exam? Is that really what good education is? Clearly, uh, 
thank you guys for having this episode because you you both know how passionate I am about this. I think there's a couple of things uh, as takeaways is that it can be better. It needs to be better uh, and not just better in the short term, but over the long term, because this is crucial, crucial, like future of the world infrastructure that needs to needs to get fixed. But I think also if you're a teacher or you are a school district, um, reach out, reach out to me, reach out to us, but reach out, you know, like I we're active on Twitter. We're active. We respond over our website. You know, these are things that we can talk, you know, there's longer term engagements, but like just for advice, please reach out because we think a lot about these tools and how to make it better. And that the knowledge economy starts in the classroom. So we're here to help. Find us at thebraveworkforce.com or you can find us at bravenewcompanies.com. And uh, I know I've been super doom and gloom today, but uh, as we often say at the end of these episodes, teachers, schools, keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's going to get better. 